Circumstance by Harriet Prescott Spofford. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. She had remained, during all that day, with a sick neighbor, those eastern wilds of Maine in that epoch frequently making neighbors and miles synonymous, and so busy had she been with care and sympathy that she did not at first observe the approaching night. But finally the level rays, reddening the snow, threw their gleam upon the wall, and hastily donning her cloak and hood, she bade her friends farewell and sallied forth on her return. Home lay some three miles distance, across a copse, a meadow, and a piece of woods, the woods being a fringe on the skirts of the great forests that stretch far away into the north. That home was one of a dozen log houses lying a few furlongs apart from each other, with their half-cleared domains separating them at the rear from a wilderness untrodden save by stealthy native or deadly panther tribes. She was in a nowise exalted frame of spirit, on the contrary, rather depressed by the pain she had witnessed and the fatigue she had endured, but in certain temperaments such a condition throws open the mental pores, so to speak, and renders one receptive of every influence. Through the little copse she walked slowly, with her cloak folded about her, lingering to imbibe the sense of shelter, the sunset filtered in purple through the mist of woven spray and twig, the companionship of growth not sufficiently dense to band against her, the sweet home-feeling of a young and tender wintry wood. It was therefore just on the edge of the evening that she emerged from the place and began to cross the meadowland. At one hand lay the forest to which her path wound, at the other the evening star hung over a tide of falling orange that slowly slipped down the earth's broad side to sadden other hemispheres with sweet regret. Walking rapidly now, and with her eyes wide open, she distinctly saw in the air before her what was not there a moment ago, a winding-sheet, cold, white, and ghastly, waved by the likeness of four wan hands, that rose with a long inflation, and fell in rigid folds, while a voice, shaping itself from the hollowness above, spectral and melancholy, sighed, The Lord have mercy on the people! The Lord have mercy on the people! Three times the sheet, with its corpse-covering outline, waved beneath the pale hands, and the voice, awful in its solemn and mysterious depth, sighed, The Lord have mercy on the people! When all was gone, the place was clear again, the grey sky was obstructed by no deathly blot. She looked about her, shook her shoulders decidedly, and, pulling on her hood, went forward once more. She might have been a little frightened by such an apparition if she had led a life of less reality than frontier settlers are apt to lead, but dealing with hard fact does not engender a flimsy habit of mind and this woman was too sincere and earnest in her character, and too happy in her situation, to be thrown by antagonism merely upon superstitious fancies and chimeras of the second sight. She did not even believe herself subject to an hallucination, but smiled simply, a little vexed that her thought could have framed such a glamour from the day's occurrences, and not sorry to lift the bow of the warder of the woods and enter and disappear in their sombre path. 
if she had been imaginative, she would have hesitated at her first step into a region whose dangers were not visionary. But I suppose that the thought of a little child at home would conquer that propensity in the most habituated. So, biting a bit of spicy birch, she went along. Now and then she came to a gap where the trees had been partially felled, and here she found that the lingering twilight was explained by that peculiar and perhaps electric film which sometimes sheathes the sky in diffused light for many hours before a brilliant aurora. Suddenly a swift shadow, like a fabulous flying dragon, writhed through the air before her, and she felt herself instantly seized and borne aloft. It was that wild beast, the most savage and serpentine, and subtle and fearless of our latitudes, known by hunters as the Indian devil, and he held her in his clutches on the broad floor of a swinging fir bough. His long sharp claws were caught in her clothing, he worried them sagaciously a little, then, finding that ineffectual to free them, he commenced licking her bare arm with his rasping tongue, and pouring over her the wide streams of his hot, fetid breath. So quick had this flashing action been, that the woman had had no time for alarm. Moreover, she was not of the screaming kind. But now, as she felt him endeavouring to disentangle his claws, and the horrid sense of her fate smote her, and she saw instinctively the fierce plunge of those weapons, the long strips of living flesh torn from her bones, the agony, the quivering disgust, itself a worse agony, while by her side and holding her in his great lithe embrace the monster crouched, his white tusks wetting and gnashing, his eyes glaring through all the darkness like balls of red fire, a shriek that rang in every forest hollow, that startled every winter-housed thing, that stirred and woke the least needle of the tasseled pines, tore through her lips. A moment afterward the beast left the arm, once white, now crimson, and looked up alertly. She did not think at this instant to call upon God. She called upon her husband. It seemed to her that she had but one friend in the world. That was he. And again the cry, loud, clear, prolonged, echoed through the woods. It was not the shriek that disturbed the creature at his relish. He was not born in the woods to be scared of an owl, you know. What then? It must have been the echo, most musical, most resonant, repeated and yet repeated, dying with long sighs of sweet sound, vibrated from rock to river and back again from depth to depth of cave and cliff. Her thought flew after it. She knew that, even if her husband heard it, he yet could not reach her in time. She saw that while the beast listened he would not gnaw, and this she felt directly, when the rough, sharp, and multiplied stings of his tongue retouched her arm. Again her lips opened by instinct, but the sound that issued thence came by reason. She had heard that music charmed wild beasts. Just this point between life and death intensified every faculty, and when she opened her lips the third time, it was not for shrieking, but for singing. A little thread of melody stole out, a rill of tremulous motion. It was the cradle song with which she rocked her baby. How could she sing that? And then she remembered the baby sleeping rosily in the long settee before the fire, the father cleaning his gun with one foot on the green wooden rundle, 
the merry light from the chimney dancing out and through the room, on the rafters of the ceiling with their tassels of onions and herbs, on the log walls painted with lichens and festooned with apples, on the king's arm slung across the shelf with the old pirate's cutlass, on the snow-pile of the bed, and on the great brass clock, dancing too, and lingering on the baby, with his fringed gentian eyes, his chubby fists clenched on the pillow, and his fine breezy hair fanning with the motion of his father's foot. All this struck her in one, and made her sob of her breath, and she ceased. Immediately the long red tongue thrust forth again. Before it touched, a song sprang to her lips, a wild sea-song, such as some sailor might be singing far out on trackless blue water that night, the shrouds whistling with frost and the sheets glued in ice, a song with the wind in its burden and the spray in its chorus. The monster raised his head and flared the fiery eyeballs upon her, then fretted the imprisoned claws a moment and was quiet. Only the breath like the vapor from some hell-pit still swathed her. Her voice, at first faint and fearful, gradually lost its quaver, grew under her control and subject to her modulation. It rose on long swells, it fell in subtle cadences, now and then its tones pealed out like bells from distant belfries on fresh sonorous mornings. She sung the song through, and, wondering lest his name of Indian Devil were not his true name, and if he would not detect her, she repeated it. Once or twice now indeed the beast stirred uneasily, turned, and made the bow sway with his movement. As she ended, he snapped his jaws together and tore away the fettered member, curling it under him with a snarl, when she burst into the gayest reel that ever answered a fiddle-bow. How many a time had she heard her husband play it on the homely fiddle made by himself from birch and cherry wood? How many a time had she seen it danced on the floor of their one room to the patter of wooden clogs and the rustle of homespun petticoat? How many a time had she danced it herself? And did she not remember once, as they joined clasps for eight hands round, how it had lent its gay, bright measure to her life? And here she was singing it alone in the forest at midnight to a wild beast. As she sent her voice trilling up and down its quick oscillations between joy and pain, the creature who grasped her uncurled his paw and scratched the bark from the bough. She must vary the spell. And her voice spun, leaping along the projecting points of tune of a hornpipe. Still singing, she felt herself twisted about with a low growl and a lifting of the red lip from the glittering teeth. She broke the hornpipe's thread and commenced unraveling a lighter, livelier thing, an Irish jig. Up and down and round about her voice flew, the beast threw back his head so that the diabolical face fronted hers, and the torrent of his breath prepared her for his feast as the anaconda slimes his prey. Frantically she darted from tune to tune, his restless movements followed her. She tired herself with dancing and vivid national airs, growing feverish and singing spasmodically as she felt her horrid tomb yawning wider. Touching in this manner all the slogan and keen clan cries, the beast moved again, but only to lay the disengaged paw across her with heavy satisfaction. She did not dare to pause. 
Through the clear cold air, the frosty starlight, she sang. If there were yet any tremor in the tone, it was not fear. She had learned the secret of sound at last. Nor could it be chill. Far too high a fever throbbed her pulses. It was nothing but the thought of the log house and of what might be passing within it. She fancied the baby stirring in his sleep and moving his pretty lips, her husband rising and opening the door, looking out after her, and wondering at her absence. She fancied the light pouring through the chink, and then shut in again with all the safety and comfort and joy, her husband taking down the fiddle and playing lightly with his head inclined, playing while she sang, while she sang for her life to an Indian devil. Then she knew he was fumbling for and finding some shining fragment and scoring it down the yellowing hair, and unconsciously her voice forsook the wild war tunes and drifted into the half-gay, half-melancholy, rosin the bow. Suddenly she woke pierced with a pang, and the daggered tooth penetrating her flesh. Dreaming of safety, she had ceased singing and lost it. The beast had regained the use of all his limbs, and now, standing and raising his back, bristling and foaming, with sounds that would have been like hisses but for their deep and fearful sonority, he withdrew step by step toward the trunk of the tree, still with his flaming balls upon her. She was all at once free, on one end of the bough twenty feet from the ground. She did not measure the distance, but rose to drop herself down, careless of any death, so that it were not this. Instantly, as if he scanned her thoughts, the creature bounded forward with a yell and caught her again in his dreadful hold. It might be that he was not greatly famished, for, as she suddenly flung up her voice again, he settled himself composedly on the bough, still clasping her with invincible pressure to his rough, ravenous breast, and listening in a fascination to the sad, strange, oolaloo that now moaned forth in loud, hollow tones above him. He half closed his eyes, and sleepily reopened and shut them again. What rending pains were close at hand! Death, and what a death! Worse than any other that is to be named! Water, be it cold or warm, that which buoys up blue ice-fields, or which bathes tropical coasts with currents of balmy bliss, is yet a gentle conqueror, kisses as it kills, and draws you down gently through darkening fathoms to its heart. Death at the sword is the festival of trumpet and bugle and banner, with glory ringing out around you, and distant hearts thrilling through yours. No gnawing disease can bring such hideous end as this, for it is a fiend bred of your own flesh. And this, is it a fiend, this living lump of appetites? What dread comes with the thought of perishing in flames? Yet fire, let it leap and hiss never so hotly, is something too remote, too alien, to inspire us with such loathly horror as a wild beast. If it have a life, that life is too utterly beyond our comprehension. Fire is not half ourselves. As it devours, arouses neither hatred nor disgust is not to be known by the strength of our lower natures let loose, does not drip our blood into our faces from foaming chaps, nor mouth nor slaver above us with vitality. Let us be ended by fire, and we are ashes for the winds to bear, the leaves to cover. Let us be ended by wild beasts, and the base, cursed thing howls with us forever through the forest. 
All this she felt as she charmed him, and what force it lent to her song God knows. If her voice should fail, if the damp and cold should give her any fatal hoarseness, if all the silent powers of the forest did not conspire to help her, the dark, hollow night rose indifferently over her, the wild, cold air breathed rudely past her, lifted her wet hair and blew it down again. The great boughs swung with a ponderous strength, now and then clashed their iron lengths together and shook off a sparkle of icy spears or some long-laid weight of snow from their heavy shadows. The green depths were utterly cold and silent and stern. These beautiful haunts that all the summer were hers and rejoiced to share with her their bounty, these heavens that had yielded their largesse, these stems that had thrust their blossoms into her hands, all these friends of three moons ago forgot her now and knew her no longer. Feeling her desolation, wild, melancholy, forsaken songs rose thereon from that frightful airy. Weeping, wailing tunes that sob among people from age to age, and overflow with otherwise unexpressed sadness, all rude, mournful ballads, old tearful strains that Shakespeare heard the vagrants sing, and that rise and fall like the wind and tide, sailor songs to be heard only in lone mid-watches, beneath the moon and stars, ghastly rhyming romances such as that famous one of Lady Margaret when, she slipped on her gown of green a piece below the knee and twas all a long cold winter's night a dead course followed she still the beast lay with closed eyes yet never relaxing his grasp once a half whine of enjoyment escaped him he fawned his fearful head upon her once he scored her cheek with his tongue savage caresses that hurt like wounds how weary she was, and yet how terribly awake! How fuller and fuller of dismay grew the knowledge that she was only prolonging her anguish and playing with death! How appalling the thought that with her voice ceased her existence! Yet she could not sing for ever. Her throat was dry and hard. Her very breath was a pain. Her mouth was hotter than any desert-worn pilgrim's if she could but drop upon her burning tongue one atom of the ice that glittered about her. But both of her arms were pinioned in the giant's vice. She remembered the winding-sheet, and for the first time in her life shivered with spiritual fear. Was it hers? She asked herself, as she sang, what sins she had committed, what life she had led, to find her punishment so soon and in these pangs, and then she thought eagerly for some reason why her husband was not up and abroad to find her. He failed her, her one sole hope in life, and without being aware of it, her voice forsook the songs of suffering and sorrow for old covenanting hymns, hymns with which her mother had lulled her, which the class leader pitched in the chimney corners, grand and sweet Methodist hymns, brimming with melody, and with all fantastic involutions of tune to suit that ecstatic worship, hymns full of the beauty of holiness, steadfast, relying, sanctified by the salvation they had lent to those in worse extremity than hers, for they had found themselves in the grasp of hell, while she was but in the jaws of death. Out of this strange music, peculiar to one character of faith, and then which there is none more beautiful in its degree, nor owning a more potent sway of sound, 
her voice soared into the glorified chants of churches. What to her was death by cold, or famine, or wild beasts? Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, she sang. High and clear through the frore fair night, the level moonbeams splintering in the wood, the scarce glints of stars in the shadowy roof of branches, those sacred anthems rose, rose as a hope from despair, as some snowy spray of flower-bells from blackest mould. Was she not in God's hands? Did not the world swing at his will? If this were his great plan of providence, was it not best, and should she not accept it? He is the Lord our God, his judgments are in all the earth. O oh, sublime faith of our fathers, where utter self-sacrifice alone was true love, the fragrance of whose unrequited subjection was pleasanter than that of golden censers swung in purple-vapored chancels. Never ceasing in the rhythm of her thoughts, articulated in music as they thronged, the memory of her first communion flashed over her. Again she was in that distant place on that sweet spring morning. Again the congregation rustled out, and the few remained, and she trembled to find herself among them. How well she remembered the devout, quiet faces, too accustomed to the sacred feast to glow with their inner joy. How well the snowy linen at the altar, the silver vessels slowly and silently shifting. And as the cup approached and passed, how the sense of delicious perfume stole in and heightened the transport of her prayer, and she had seemed, looking up through the windows where the sky soared blue in constant freshness, to feel all heaven's balms dripping from the portals, and to scent the lilies of eternal peace. Perhaps another would not have felt so much ecstasy as satisfaction on that occasion, but it is a true if a later disciple, who has said, the Lord bestoweth his blessings there, where he findeth the vessels empty. And does it need the walls of a church to renew my communion? she asked. Does not every moment stand a temple four-square to God? And in that morning, with its buoyant sunlight, was I any dearer to the heart of the world than now? My beloved is mine, and I am his, she sang over and over again, with all varied inflection and profuse tune how gently all the winter-wrapped things bent toward her then! Into what relation with her had they grown! How this common dependence was the spell of their intimacy! How at one with nature had she become! How all the night and the silence and the forest seemed to hold its breath, and to send its soul up to God in her singing! It was no longer despondency, that singing! It was neither prayer nor petition! She had left imploring, how long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, for in death there is no remembrance of thee, with countless other such fragments of supplication. She cried rather, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff they comfort me, and lingered and repeated and sang again, I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Then she thought of the great deliverance, when he drew her up out of many waters, and the flashing old psalm pealed forth triumphantly. The Lord descended from above, and bowed the heavens high, and underneath his feet he cast the darkness of the sky. On cherubs and on cherubins full royally he rode, 
and on the wings of all the winds came flying all abroad. She forgot how recently, and with what a strange pity for her own shapeless form that was to be, she had quaintly sung, O lovely appearance of death, what sight upon earth is so fair? Not all the gay pageants that breathe can with a dead body compare. She remembered instead, In thy presence is fullness of joy, at thy right hand there are pleasures for evermore. God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. He will swallow up death in victory. Not once now did she say, Lord, how long wilt thou look on? Rescue my soul from their destructions, my darling from the lions. For she knew that the young lions roar after their prey, and seek their meat from God. O Lord, thou preservest man and beast, she said. She had no comfort or consolation in this season, such as sustained the Christian martyrs in the amphitheatre. She was not dying for her faith. There were no palms in heaven for her to wave. But how many a time had she declared, I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And as the broad rays here and there broke through the dense covert of shade and lay in rivers of lustre on crystal sheathing and broken fretting of trunk and limb and on the great spaces of refraction, they builded up visibly that house, the shining city on the hill, and singing, Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Her vision climbed to that higher picture where the angel shows the dazzling thing, the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God, with its splendid battlements and gates of pearls, and its foundations, the eleventh adjacent, the twelfth in amethyst, with its great white throne and the rainbow round about it, in sight like unto an emerald. And there shall be no night there, for the Lord God giveth them light, she sang. What whisper of dawn now rustled through the wilderness! How the night was passing! And still the beast crouched upon the bough, changing only the posture of his head, that again he might command her with those charmed eyes. Half their fire was gone. She could almost have released herself from his custody. Yet, had she stirred, no one knows what malevolent instinct might have dominated anew. But of that she did not dream. Long ago stripped of any expectation, she was experiencing in her divine rapture how mystically true it is that he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Slow clarion cries now wound from the distance as the cocks caught the intelligence of day and re-echoed it faintly from farm to farm, sleepy sentinels of night sounding the foe's invasion and translating that dim intuition to ringing tones of warning. Still she chanted on. A remote crash of brushwood told of some other beast on his depredations, or some night-belated traveller groping his way through the narrow path. Still she chanted on. The far, faint echoes of the chanticleers died into distance. The crashing of the branches grew nearer. No wild beast that, but a man's step, a man's form in the moonlight, stalwart and strong. On one arm slept a little child, in the other hand he held his gun. Still she chanted on. Perhaps, when her husband last looked forth, he was half ashamed to find what a fear he felt for her. 
he knew she would never leave the child so long but for some direst need and yet he may have laughed at himself as he lifted it and wrapped it with awkward care and loading his gun and strapping on his horn opened the door again and closed it behind him going out and plunging into the darkness and dangers of the forest he was more singularly alarmed than he would have been willing to acknowledge as he had sat with his bow hovering over the strings he had half believed to hear her voice mingling gaily with the instrument till he paused and listened if she were not about to lift the latch and enter as he drew nearer the heart of the forest that intimation of melody seemed to grow more actual to take body and breath to come and go on long swells and ebbs of the night breeze to increase with tune and words till a strange shrill singing grew ever clearer and as he stepped into an open space of moonbeams far up in the branches rocked by the wind and singing how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings that publisheth peace he saw his wife his wife but great god in heaven how some mad exclamation escaped him but without diverting her the child knew the singing voice though never heard it before in that unearthly key and turned toward it through the veiling dreams with a celerity almost instantaneous it lay in the twinkling of an eye on the ground at the father's feet while his gun he raised to his shoulder and levelled at the monster covering his wife with shaggy form and flaming gaze his wife so ghastly white so rigid so stained with blood her eyes so fixedly bent above and her lips that had indurated into the chiselled pallor of marble parted only with that flood of solemn song i do not know if it were the mother instinct that for a moment lowered her eyes those eyes so lately riveted on heaven now suddenly seeing all lifelong bliss possible a thrill of joy pierced and shivered through her like a weapon her voice trembled in its course her glance lost its steady strength fever flushes chased each other over her face yet she never once ceased chanting she was quite aware that if her husband shot now the ball must pierce her body before reaching any vital part of the beast and yet better that death by his hand than the other but this her husband also knew and he remained motionless just covering the creature with the sight he dared not fire lest some wound not mortal should break the spell exercised by her voice and the beast enraged with pain should rend her in atoms moreover the light was too uncertain for his aim so he waited now and then he examined his gun to see if the damp were injuring its charge now and then he wiped the great drops from his forehead again the cocks crowed with the passing hour the last time they were heard on that night cheerful home sound then how full of safety and all comfort and rest it seemed what sweet morning incidents of sparkling fire and sunshine of gay household bustle shining dresser and cooing baby of steaming cattle in the yard and brimming milk pails at the door what pleasant voices what laughter what security and here now as she sang on in the slow endless infinite moments the fervent vision of god's peace was gone just as the grave had lost its sting she was snatched back again into the arms of earthly hope in vain she tried to sing there remaineth a rest for the people of god 
her eyes trembled on her husband's and she could only think of him and of the child and of happiness that might yet be but with what a dreadful gulf of doubt between she shuddered now in the suspense all calm forsook her she was tortured with dissolving heats or frozen with icy blasts her face contracted growing small and pinched her voice was hoarse and sharp every tone cut like a knife the notes became heavy to lift withheld by some hostile pressure impossible one gasp a convulsive effort and there was silence she had lost her voice the beast made a sluggish movement stretched and fawned like one awakening then as if he would have yet more of the enchantment stirred her slightly with his muzzle as he did so a sidelong hint of the man standing below with the raised gun smote him he sprung round furiously and seizing his prey was about to leap into some unknown airy den of the topmost branches now waving to the slow dawn the late moon had rounded through the sky so that her gleam at last fell full upon the bough with fairy frosting the wintry morning light did not yet penetrate the gloom the woman suspended in mid-air an instant cast only one agonized glance beneath but across and through it ere the lids could fall shot a withering sheet of flame a rifle crack half heard was lost in the terrible yell of desperation that bounded after it and filled her ears with savage echoes and in the wide arc of some eternal descent she was falling but the beast fell under her i think that the moment following must have been too sacred for us and perhaps the three have no special interest again till they issue from the shadows of the wilderness upon the white hills that skirt their home the father carries the child hushed again into slumber the mother follows with no such feeble step as might be anticipated it is not time for reaction the tension not yet relaxed the nerves still vibrant she seems to herself like some one newly made the night was a dream the present stamped upon her in deep satisfaction neither weighed nor compared with the past if she has the careful tricks of former habit it is as an automaton and as they slowly climb the steep under the clear grey vault and the paling morning star and as she stops to gather a spray of the red roseberries or a feathery tuft of dead grasses for the chimney-piece of the log-house or a handful of brown cones for the child's play of these quiet happy folk you could scarcely dream how lately they had stolen from under the banner and encampment of the great king death the husband proceeds a step or two in advance the wife lingers over a singular footprint in the snow stoops and examines it then looks up with a hurried word her husband stands alone on the hill his arms folded across the babe his gun fallen stands defined as a silhouette against the pallid sky what is there in their home lying below and yellowing in the light to fix him with such a stare she springs to his side there is no home there the log house the barns the neighboring farms the fences are all blotted out and mingled in one smoking ruin desolation and death were indeed there and beneficence and life in the forest tomahawk and scalping knife descending during that night had left behind them only this work of their accomplished hatred and one subtle footprint in the snow for the rest the world was all before them where to choose
End of Circumstance by Harriet Prescott Spofford. Read by Tricia G.